Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. More than 900 people died in a powerful earthquake in Afghanistan. At least 600 more were injured. It was the country's deadliest earthquake in 20 years. One Trump-endorsed candidate wins and two lose in primary runoff elections in Alabama and Georgia on Tuesday. Find out who's moving on to the general elections in November. The Senate advances a bipartisan gun control bill. A final vote could come later this week. Why are some lawmakers concerned about it? A win for school choice. The Supreme Court steps in and allows taxpayer-funded vouchers to be used for religious schools in Maine, overturning a state ban against it. But what about non-religious parents? How does it affect them? We hear from a children advocacy group to learn more. Afghanistan was rattled by its deadliest earthquake in decades early this morning. More than 900 people were killed. Rescue efforts are underway to help the injured. A powerful earthquake struck Afghanistan early Wednesday. Over 1,000 people died and more than 1,500 were injured. It was midnight when the quake struck. The kids and I screamed. One of our rooms was destroyed. Our neighbors screamed and we saw everyone's rooms. It destroyed the houses of our neighbors. When we arrived, there were many dead and wounded. They sent us to the hospital. I also saw many dead bodies. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the tragedy occurred around 27 miles from the southeastern city of Khost, near the Pakistani border. The agency put the earthquake's magnitude at 5.9, but the European Mediterranean Seismological Center said it's 6.1. The organization says 100 million people in Pakistan, Afghanistan and India felt the tremors. It was the deadliest earthquake in Afghanistan since 2002. Footage shows houses and buildings raised to rubble. Helicopters were dispatched to reach the injured and airlift medical supplies and food. Officials say most of the confirmed deaths were in the eastern Afghan province of Paktika. The death toll could still rise, with more information coming in from remote mountain villages. The leader of the Taliban offered his condolences. But for his regime, rescue operations could post a major challenge. The Taliban took over the country last August. Since then, it has been cut off from much international aid due to sanctions. According to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, Afghanistan has asked humanitarian agencies to help with relief efforts. Trump-endorsed Katie Britt wins Alabama's Senate primary runoff, and the results from Georgia's primary runoff and Virginia's primary are also in. NTD reporter Jeremy Sandberg has more on the outcomes of Tuesday's elections. Katie Britt defeated incumbent six-term Congressman Mo Brooks in Alabama's GOP Senate primary runoff. Brooks, who ran on a Make America Great Again platform and called himself Mega Mo during his campaign, lost former President Donald Trump's endorsement in March after urging voters to focus on the future and put the 2020 election behind them. Britt, who is a former chief of staff for retiring Republican Senator Richard Shelby, received Trump's endorsement this month. Britt tallied around 60% of the vote. She will run against Democrat Will Boyd in November's general election. In Georgia's Republican House primary runoffs, Mark Gonsalves beat Michael Corbin for the 7th District nomination with 70% of the vote, and Chris West defeated Jeremy Hunt in a close race for the 2nd District. Mike Collins beat Trump-endorsed Vernon Jones in the 10th District, 
and in the 6th District, Rich McCormick presided over Trump-backed Jake Evans with roughly double the amount of votes. In Georgia's Democratic House primary runoffs, Tabitha Johnson Green won District 10, and Wade Herring took District 1. In Virginia, Republican State Senator and Navy veteran Jen Kiggins won the House GOP primary for District 2, and will face incumbent Democratic Representative Elaine Luria. Yesley Vega won the Republican primary for District 7, and will challenge incumbent Representative Abigail Spanberger. Luria and Spanberger are seen as two of the most vulnerable Democratic House members in November's midterms. Democrat President Joe Biden's approval rating has been declining in recent polls, and with inflation and high gas prices on voters' minds, Republicans are hoping to win control of the House. They would need to flip only five Democratic seats to gain a majority, and it's possible they could also take control of the Senate. That would bring Biden's legislative agenda to a halt and give Republicans the power to launch investigations against him. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Independent candidate Al Gross has dropped out of the Alaska Special House race. Gross, an orthopedic surgeon, did not provide a reason for leaving the race. He said he's now throwing his support behind two native Alaskan candidates, Republican Tara Swinney and former Democratic State Representative Mary Peltola. He encouraged his supporters to stay engaged. The seat became open in March after Republican Representative Don Young passed away. The winner of this special election will only serve in Congress until January unless re-elected in November for a full two-year term. The Supreme Court appears to be ready to consider a new election case. Republicans want to give state lawmakers more power when it comes to elections for Congress and the presidency. The case could also give state lawmakers more power in redistricting and cut state courts out of election-related cases. Democratic majorities on some states' highest courts have thwarted Republicans' election-related plans, such as in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Four conservative Supreme Court justices have indicated they're interested in considering some of these questions. It takes four justices to agree to hear a case and five to reach a decision. Congresswoman Myra Flores is the first Republican to represent her Texas district in more than 100 years. She was sworn into office Tuesday by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I am a proud Border Patrol wife and a mother fighting for a better future for our children. I want to inspire every child that today is working in the fields, strawberry, onions, cotton field, and you name it. I want you to know that you can become a congressman, a congresswoman, if you work hard. Mexico-born Flores says that she has risen from working in the cotton fields to representing the community she lives in the United States Congress. Flores posed for photos with her hand on a Bible held by her husband while flanked by her four children and Speaker Pelosi. Both women were smiling and briefly shook hands. Flores was elected in a special election to replace a Democrat congressman who left for another job. She will serve at least until January 2023. Pelosi and other Democrats want to see Flores voted out of Congress in the upcoming midterm elections. The chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee said that Flores will barely have enough time to set up her desk before South Texans sent her packing. But Flores is hoping the power of incumbency and the real possibility of a major shift in voter party affiliation will put another victory within reach. 
The Senate advanced a gun control bill last night following bipartisan talks. A final vote could come later this week. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. The Senate voted 64 to 34 Tuesday night to advance a gun control bill to debate. The 80-page bill is called the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Ahead of the vote, lead Democratic negotiator Senator Chris Murphy called it the most important gun bill in 30 years. This is a breakthrough. And more importantly, it's a bipartisan breakthrough. Lead Republican negotiator, Texas Senator John Cornyn, said since the Uvalde school shooting last month, his office has received tens of thousands of messages asking him to do something. Texans are disgusted and outraged by what happened at Robb Elementary, and they want Congress to take appropriate action. The measure includes millions of dollars for mental health, school safety, and crisis intervention programs. It would also toughen background checks for the youngest gun buyers require more sellers to conduct background checks and beef up penalties on gun traffickers. Republican Senator Josh Hawley criticized the quick vote, tweeting, Here we are voting to move on a bill negotiated entirely behind closed doors, released only an hour ago, that no one has had time to fully read. Senator Tom Cotton said, This bill won't stop violent shootings by deranged criminals, but it will restrict the freedoms of law-abiding Americans. Instead, Cotton suggested more funding for police and tougher sentences for criminals who violate gun laws. Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is racing to approve the bill before the chamber takes off for the July 4th holiday. We will move to final passage as soon as possible. I expect the bill to pass the Senate by the week's end. It's unknown if it can get the 10 Republican votes needed to overcome a filibuster and pass. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he supports the bill, which could indicate it has enough support. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The White House has a plan to ease the pain at the pump. For now, at least, President Joe Biden is expected to lay it all out in a speech today. First, senior administration officials say he's going to call on Congress to suspend federal gasoline and diesel taxes until the end of September. Second, he'll call on states to lift their own taxes on gas and diesel. And third, he's going to tell oil refining companies to increase their capacity ahead of their meeting with the administration this week. By combining all three, if everyone agrees, officials say it could reduce the price per gallon of gas by $1. However, critics say the removal of the gas tax is a bad idea. They say it will not significantly lower prices, and it will reduce funding for road and bridge maintenance. Also, there is no guarantee that gas stations will not pocket the savings. Right now, the national average for a gallon of gas is hovering near the $5 mark. A jetliner caught fire Tuesday after landing at Miami International Airport when the front landing gear collapsed. Authorities say no serious injuries were reported. The MD-82 jetliner was carrying 126 people. Three of them were taken to a hospital for treatment of minor injuries. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue posted on Twitter that crews had the fire under control and were mitigating fuel spillage. Video shows the plane having come to rest in grass beside a runway. Firefighters apparently doused the aircraft and the surrounding area with white chemicals. At least three firefighting vehicles were positioned nearby. Airport officials said in a tweet that the airport experienced some flight delays Tuesday evening, adding that passengers were instructed to check with airlines for details. The tweet also said the collapse of the front landing gear and the nose of the aircraft appeared to be the cause of the fire. 
The National Transportation Safety Board posted that a team would be going to the airport to investigate the fire. Starting on September 7th, American Airlines will end service to at least three cities due to the pilot shortage. The company will stop flying to Ithaca and Islip, New York, as well as Toledo, Ohio. According to several reports, including one from USA Today, American will also stop flying to Dubuque, Iowa. Those four markets are currently served by the airline's regional affiliates with up to two flights per day to larger hubs. A spokesperson for the American company says the company has 100 regional planes on the ground that it can't fly because there aren't enough regional pilots. Coming up, the mayor of New York City watches a bulldozer crush seized illegal dirt bikes and all-terrain vehicles. He says they're being destroyed to prevent them from returning to the streets. Find out more right here on NTD News. A member of the Air Force is accused of attacking his fellow service members. The airman was arrested by military law enforcement on June 16th in connection to an April attack at a U.S. military base in northern Syria. The attack left four U.S. service members injured. The Pentagon is refusing to disclose any additional details at this time. Initially, U.S. officials said they believe the April 7th attack was caused by indirect fire on the base. They said it was similar to rocket and mortar attacks that have been carried out in the region by militia groups. However, a week later, a military statement said something different. After further investigation, officials said they believe the attack was a result of deliberate placement of explosive charges at an ammunition holding area and shower facility. The four injured service members were treated for traumatic brain injuries after the explosions. They have since returned to duty. And in Texas, the director of the state's Department of Public Safety testified before the Texas Senate. He said the Uvalde School District police chief chose to put the lives of officers ahead of the lives of children. And today's Jason Perry has the story. One error, 14 minutes and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. The director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, Colonel Steve McGraw, testified before the Texas Senate on the police response to the school shooting in Uvalde. And while they waited, the on-scene commander waited for radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. Parents of the victims and residents also blamed the on-scene commander, Pete Arredondo, when they spoke at Monday's school board meeting in Uvalde. I find it shameful that we had almost 100 officers on the scene and I had to leave work and save my own. We were failed by Pete Arredondo. He failed our kids, teachers, parents, and city. And by keeping him on your staff, Y'all are continuing to fail us. How is Ms. Redondo still with the program? Suspend them pending termination. It's an insult to injury. These people are in pain and you allow this to happen. Jose Flores Sr. lost his 10-year-old son in the shooting. I mean, the chief, they still have the chief. They haven't fired him. He's still in, he's still in the office. Something has to be done. 
Delays in the law enforcement response have been the focus of the investigations. We reached out to the Uvalde School District Police Department for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. The mayor of Uvalde, Texas, says the elementary school where 19 children and two teachers were gunned down last month will be demolished. It's my, my, my understanding, and, my, and I had this discussion with the, the superintendent, that school will be demolished. You can never ask a child to go back or a teacher to go back in that school ever. It comes as Mayor Don McLaughlin criticized those leading the investigation, saying he hasn't been briefed on how it's going. He also accused the Department of Public Safety of making misleading statements. The man accused of trying to murder Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh is facing a judge Wednesday for an arraignment hearing. Authorities say 26-year-old Nicholas John Roski showed up at Kavanaugh's house in Maryland with his gun earlier this month. He later told police he had suicidal thoughts and that he planned to kill, quote, a specific United States Supreme Court justice. He also allegedly said he was upset about the leak of the Supreme Court opinion related to abortion an upcoming gun control case, and the school shooting in Uvalde. Roski has been charged with attempting or threatening to kidnap or murder a U.S. judge. If he's convicted, the maximum sentence would be life in prison. The Supreme Court has paved the way for parents in Maine to use vouchers to send their children to religious schools. The state banned the taxpayer-funded tuition aid from being used that way, but the high court struck down the state's law. Our next guest gives us insight into how this affects families, both religious and not. Please welcome Walter Blanks, Jr., who is the press secretary for the American Federation for Children. Thank you for coming on the show, Walter. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Chief Justice John Roberts said Maine was excluding schools from its tuition assistance program based on their exercise of religion, thus violating the First Amendment. So what does this mean for children in the state? Well, first, this is a huge ruling for not only religious families, but all families when it comes to parental rights in, in education. Um, now, parents have the decision to, to put their children in um, a religious school for, for whatever reason um, because of school choice. And so some parents um, who don't even practice religion uh, may, may use that school for the academic rigor or the values that that school um, instills in their students or their children. And so Ultimately, it's just one more avenue, one more access point for, for parents to put their children um, in the best educational environment that works for them. I see what you mean, that it's not simply just about religious belief. It could also be about academics. What does this Supreme Court ruling signal for children across the country more broadly? Yeah, similar to the, the things that are going on with, within the state, right? Educational freedom, right? Parents should not have stipulations or limits to where they put their children for for whatever reasons. And we often hear about the argument of, you know, the separation of, of church and state. And it doesn't violate that because parents and families are choosing wherever they send their their, their child to when it comes to, to education. It's super important across the country to allow parents to be in the driver's seat of their children's education. The Biden administration supported Maine's ban. What does this decision signal in terms of the Biden administration's stance as well as the camp of the people who favor school choice? Yeah, well, with, with the Biden administration, we've seen a lot of work to, to limit school choice. We've seen a lot of things at the federal level when it comes to charter schools, 
um, as well as supporting this, this uh, the Blaine Amendment that, that we often talk about. And so it's, it's really disappointing to see from, from the Biden administration to continue to cater to a special interest group and, and putting that interest above the interest of students. Now, when it comes to the school choice movement and the people who support school choice, we see this as a huge, huge win. Um, a lot of families um, in Maine, as, cross, uh, as well as across the country, are, are desperate for options, especially uh, with the current educational landscape and coming out of the pandemic. And so we were really happy with this decision, and we're, we're working to expand more options for, for all students uh, across the country as well. Can you elaborate on that, how you're working to expand more options? Yeah, so um, American Federation for Children, uh, we actually uh, work uh, in elections in, in the states. A great example of, of that is um, Iowa. Most recently, we, we worked with a lot of uh, people there, legislators there, who are um, supporting school choice legislation. And Governor Cameron has been a huge champion um, for that. But then we also advocate for, for the importance of educational options. As someone uh, like myself who benefited from school choice in, in the great state of Ohio, um, we believe that all children should have that. So, so we travel the country, we advocate, uh, we elevate student voices as well as parent voices to really make this issue known and to ensure that um, children are being served when it comes to their education. And what advice do you have for parents, Walter? Um, the, the only advice that I have for parents is, is you got to fight for your babies. You got to fight for your kids and, and the students around you and, and not to give up and that there are a lot of people, uh, legislators, advocates, people like myself, who, who believe in this cause and champion this cause. So if you're a parent looking for options, get out there, fight for your students, and see what options are available, not just for you, but for families around you, because education is the gateway to unlimited opportunity, and every single child should have that chance. Walter Blanks, Jr., American Federation for Children, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to sign a bill to grant places of worship the right to keep doors open during a state of emergency. It would officially designate religious services as essential. The bill would allow houses of worship to remain open and host public gatherings in the event of a public emergency or disaster. The governor received the bill last Friday and has until June 30th to act on it. The bill says religious services can only be shut down in an emergency order which applies uniformly to all entities in an area, and it must be applied in the least restrictive way. If approved, the Sunshine State will be one of a dozen states to exempt houses of worship from stay-at-home orders. During the height of the CCP virus pandemic, many churches were forced to shut down while liquor or marijuana stores remained open. Dirt bikes confiscated by the New York City Police Department were crushed under a bulldozer in Brooklyn. New York City Mayor Eric Adams waved a checkered flag to start the bulldozing event where 100 dirt bikes and all-terrain vehicles were crushed. Dirt bikes and uh, ATVs, they are not only a nuisance and an annoyance uh, to us, uh, but they're extremely dangerous. The NYPD uh, heard the call and they did a Herculean task uh, to get rid of these loud, intimidating, and dangerous and illegal uh, dirt bikes and ATVs that are on our street. The 100 bulldozed dirt bikes and ATVs were part of the 2,000 illegal vehicles already impounded by the NYPD this year, an 88% increase from last year. And they will be crushed today and so that they could never terrorize our city again 
uh, each and every one of them. Uh, they will be turned into scrap metal and eventually recycled. Uh, the motorbikes are destroyed rather than resold or donated in order to prevent them from returning uh, to our streets and not allow them to be operating again. Dirt bikes and APTVs made for charging down unpaved roads are not legal on New York City streets. Broadway is going mask optional, at least for the month of July. The Broadway League made the announcement Tuesday. The league said future masking protocols will be determined on a month-to-month basis as it continues to monitor the science. Although masking will be optional, the league said theatergoers are still encouraged to cover up. The Georgia Supreme Court has overturned the murder conviction against Justin Ross Harris in the hot car death of his toddler son, Cooper. Harris was convicted of deliberately leaving Cooper in a hot SUV to die in Atlanta in June 2014. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. His lawyers argued it was an accident and appealed. The state Supreme Court ruled Wednesday he did not get a fair trial. It said much of the evidence of his extramarital affairs unfairly prejudiced the jury. It was a 6-3 to three decision to overturn the conviction. The chief justice wrote that the evidence that Harris intentionally left his son to die was far from overwhelming. The decision means Harris is now entitled to a new trial. The Supreme Court did uphold Harris's conviction on sex crimes against a teen. Police in Louisville, Kentucky, arrested a man in, con- in connection with the Saturday assault of the city's mayor, Greg Fisher. Louisville officers took 30-year-old Antoine Brown into custody without incident. Brown is facing a charge of assault in the fourth degree for allegedly punching Fisher at a popular downtown event complex. He's behind bars waiting for arraignment. In a statement, in a statement the Louisville Metro Police Department thanked everyone who shared photographs of the suspect. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, Ukraine conducts secret rescue missions in the besieged city of Mariupol. Many Ukrainian soldiers have been trapped there with supplies running low. And Europe's biggest Russian gas buyers hurry to find alternative fuel supplies. They may end up burning more coal to cope with reduced gas flow from Russia. We'll have all that and more for you right after the short break. Ukrainian forces are conducting a series of secret high-risk helicopter missions to reach soldiers who are besieged in the city of Mariupol. Troops on the mission have to confront Russia's dominance in the sky. Let's take a look. The Ukrainian military is trying to deliver supplies and evacuate wounded soldiers from the besieged Azovstal steel mill in the coastal city of Mariupol. Russian troops currently surround the plan, and Ukrainian troops were pinned down for weeks with supplies running low. It was necessary to show by this example that such flights are possible to those guys who flew later, to those pilots who flew, to demonstrate and show that it is possible, that this is not fantasy. Naturally, when we first landed on the territory of the Avazstal plant, the guys who shipped the ammunition and the guys we loaded said the following phrase, I don't know where you came from, but you flew to us from the sky. You seem to have descended from the sky. One of the Ukrainian soldiers evacuated through the mission is a 20-year-old who suffered serious injuries in the first month of the war. 
His left leg had to be amputated above the knee. So my left leg was broken, my right foot was pierced, and I found out just a week ago that I had shrapnel in my body. I didn't even know that there was shrapnel. It looks like I got it in the back, and my friend could no longer pull me and shouted that I must crawl. The helicopter flights are extremely risky. Sometimes they have to fly just 10 feet above the ground to escape Russian fire. One of the helicopters on the mission never made it back and is considered missing. Russian troops absolutely controlled the sky and aviation, both planes and helicopters. They constantly bombarded our guys who were at the Azovstal plant. And that is why the FIM-92 Stinger systems that we brought in were critically essential to hit air targets that came to bombard Azovstal. They also needed NLAWs and FGM-148 Javelin systems because the enemy's armed vehicles also, in principle, dominated. Russian forces tightened their grip on Mariupol in mid-April. The city is home to a strategic port on the Sea of Azov. Military crews from Austria, Belgium, Hungary, Slovakia and Slovenia started a joint helicopter exercise called Fireblade 2022 in Western Hungary on Tuesday. The European Defense Agency is holding the three-week-long exercise. It aims at enhancing cooperation between several European nations in various combat techniques. EDA's project officer said that since the last edition, held in 2017, the focus had shifted away from guerrilla-like insurgencies like in Afghanistan. Now they focus on conventional country-against-country conflict. He added the European forces are not operating in a scenario such as the war in Ukraine, but he said they need to be prepared for anything. 20 helicopters, five aircrafts, and two Smoky Sam simulators were used in air assault and hostage rescue situations. Europe's biggest Russian gas buyers are racing to find alternative fuel supplies. One option is to burn more coal. Reduced gas flow from Russia threatens an energy crisis in winter if stores are not refilled. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Germany, Italy, Austria, and the Netherlands have all signaled a willingness to use coal-fired power plants as Europe faces a crisis that has sent gas prices surging amid inflation. Germany said it could restart coal-fired power plants that it had aimed to phase out. Russia on Monday repeated its earlier criticism that Europe had only itself to blame after the West imposed sanctions in response to Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline is the main route supplying Germany, and Russian gas flows to Europe's biggest economy were still running at about 40% of capacity on Monday, even though they had edged up from the start of last week. Ukraine said its pipelines could help to fill any gap in supply via Nord Stream 1. Moscow has previously said it could not pump more through the pipelines that Ukraine has not already shut off. Germany's economy ministry said bringing back coal-fired power plants could add up to 10 gigawatts of capacity in case gas supply hit critical levels. A law related to the move goes to the upper house of parliament on July 8th. Alongside a shift back to coal, the latest German measures include an auction system to encourage industry to consume less gas, and financial help for Germany's gas market operator via state lender KFW to fill gas storage faster. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A woman whose fiancé died after receiving the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine will receive funds. She's one of the first recipients of England's vaccine damage payment scheme. Vicki Spitt told GB News that she received $160,000 in payment following the death of her 48-year-old husband-to-be. 
Sarah Moore from Hausfeld Law Firm spoke to the Epic Times. She said there are around 1,300 applicants in the UK awaiting an outcome from the vaccine damage payment scheme. She also says she believes many applicants will be refused payment. In March, the government said it estimated the process will take an average of six months of investigation. That's to verify that the vaccine was the cause of a person's illness. An applicant who said he started to suffer two weeks after taking the AstraZeneca vaccine also spoke to the outlet. He said there has always been the lack of support from the medical profession and from the government in regards to compensation. And just ahead, a fire in Hong Kong leaves 20,000 customers without power. Dozens of schools will need to suspend classes. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. A fire in the global financial hub of Hong Kong left 20,000 households without electricity today amid hot and humid weather. Electricity supplier CLP Power said one of its cable bridges in the northern district, Yunlong, had caught fire on Tuesday. It cut power to around 160,000 customers. The company said there were no injuries. They restored power to essential services, including hospitals and railways, but they said they would need two more days to restore supply to a remaining 20,000 customers. The city's government is requesting an investigation into the accident. The Education Bureau said dozens of schools in the area had lost power and that they would need to suspend classes on Wednesday. As we approach 25 years since Hong Kong was handed back to China, the last British governor of Hong Kong says the situation there is heartbreaking. He says the world is dealing with what he calls a post-peak China. That's as he launched his new book, The Hong Kong Diaries. Entity's Jane Worrell was at the book launch and has more for us. In 1997, Hong Kong was handed back to China under what was meant to be one country, two systems, an agreement to preserve Hong Kong's civil liberties for 50 years. Lord Chris Patton led the last British government in Hong Kong and said it's distressing to see what's happening to Hong Kongers today. It's pretty heartbreaking when you see what's happened to those people who were who identify themselves as Hong Kong Chinese, Hong Kongers, but aren't proud of the fact that Hong Kong has reverted to Chinese sovereignty, the occupied territory, and I just find it intensely difficult. But he says he does have hope that Hong Kong will become a great city again. He spoke as he launched his new book, The Hong Kong Diaries. It's based on a diary he kept while he was the governor of Hong Kong, which details his day-to-day life running Hong Kong as a British colony and a path to the handover. He had some advice for the incoming leader of Hong Kong, John Lee, who was the sole candidate for the latest chief executive election in which the vast majority of Hong Kongers weren't allowed to vote. My one piece of advice to Mr Lee would be to encourage his wife and children to keep their British passports. MPs have been critical of Beijing's increasing authoritarian control of Hong Kong. Lord Patton says the future of the city's economic prosperity depends on the rule of law. It becomes more difficult if a lot of your best people are leaving and if you're starting to lose um, the relationship between um, between uh, um, freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, um, and uh, the management of the economy. I think that there is a close relationship between the rule of law and economic success. 
He hopes this book will get more people talking about what Hong Kong represents to the free world. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. In Hong Kong, one man has made it his mission to preserve items that tell the story of Hong Kong's British colonial past. It stems from items in his personal collection of the time of the British handover to China in 1997. The region is now firmly back in the fold of the mainland as this year marks 25 years since the end of British rule. Here's more. Every step up the staircase in Hong Kong is a step back to the past. Businessman Brian Ong opened the Museum Victoria City last year. It's part personal collection and part souvenir shop, a two-story time capsule of the territory's British colonial past. I think history is, is, is quite important to every individual, uh, regardless if it's good or bad. It's always a lesson to learn and always an experience from the past. Next week, Hong Kong will mark 25 years since the British handed the territory back to China. But for the hobbyist like Ong, the past still lingers. His fascination has turned into a pastime collecting things like stamps, banknotes and portraits. Among the museum's most precious items, a partially burnt British flag dating back to a World War II battle. Ong began building his trove when he was only 15 years old. These are all the newspaper clippings I collected as a teenager about the 1997 handover, which I consider invaluable because they took a lot of time and work to collect. This specific news report is noteworthy since it shows the Navy taking down the Queen's portrait from headquarters. Hong Kong is preparing for the handover anniversary on July the 1st, amid growing acrimony between the city's old political masters and mainland China. Britain has accused Beijing of breaking its promises following a crackdown on dissent after the 2019 pro-democracy protests. Beijing has responded with angry rebukes. Ong's museum may seem politically sensitive, but he is confident there's nothing here that would irk authorities. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, Catalonia's beaches become busy as the summer season begins, but business owners are worried that there are not enough employees to meet the demand. And Australia tries to tackle food waste. One Sydney resident's composting benches could be part of the answer to the problem. Find out more right here on NTD News. Hundreds of Canadians camped outside through the weekend, all for a chance to get their passports. Passport Canada is facing a huge demand for travel documents since pandemic restrictions lifted. It's causing months of processing delays. Many travelers lined up outdoors for over a day in the city of Montreal, Canada. Some were spotted cloaked in blankets and sleeping bags, wrapped in camping chairs, or even resting over folded cardboard boxes. According to the authorities and social media witnesses, there are also delays in the Toronto, the Vancouver, and the Ontario offices. In Catalonia, Spain, beaches are becoming busy as the summer season begins, but bars and hotels are struggling to find enough workers to serve the influx of tourists. Busy season is still a month away, but the beachfront in southern Catalonia looks as packed as in pre-pandemic times. Tourists from the UK and elsewhere in Europe have been arriving since late May. 
Business owners were caught by surprise by such a powerful recovery of visitor numbers. They say they're worried that there are not enough waiters, kitchen assistants, chefs, and other employees to meet the demand. Restaurant manager Jose Cortez says people have lost interest in these jobs. This year, the summer season looks very good, and it's getting difficult to find workers. Since 2019 that we didn't have this rhythm of work, and workers somehow seem to have lost their grip and they can't take it. The situation is a cause of concern for a sector that is key to their regional economy. Musa is a waiter at this beachfront restaurant. <laughs> well, about the wages, and there is very little time left, people don't want to work too many hours. And in this business sector, we must admit that during high season, there was way too much work. At this restaurant, most workers picked up shifts here during the summer for many years. But manager Felix Ruiz says the pandemic has meant some people have gone into different fields of work. It's true that we are having people who traditionally worked in this sector moving elsewhere. But it's normal. We've had a two-year pandemic. Last year, we opened four months instead of eight. So people have to resort to other jobs. And now things go back to normal. But those workers are elsewhere. This beach bar is currently fully staffed for the season. Maxi Alvarez used to work in a poultry farm until the start of the pandemic. He was unemployed for a year and a half, so he decided to get into the hospitality sector. Well, in the end, it is about people wanting to work or not. The season is now picking up, and there is a lot of work around. Things are getting better. It depends on the people. How much are they willing to work? The large number of tourist arrivals in recent weeks is encouraging news for Tarragona province. The region recorded over 20 million overnight visitor stays during 2019. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Australia is trying to tackle food waste. The government, local authorities and individual initiatives are all making an effort. In Sydney, one resident's creative invention could be a step in the right direction. Every year, one-third of the world's food is wasted. That's according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. In Australia, the government says that equates to trashing 8.3 million tons of food. 34% it's in the uh, residential sector, meaning at the household level. So we buy food and we do not eat it. That waste also costs the economy $27.5 billion per year in Australia alone. The Australian National Food Waste Strategy Feasibility Study found that if all the food the country wasted was spread out on land, it would cover more than 60 million acres. That's larger than the state of Victoria. So it might feel like, you know, you've had too much takeaway and uh, it's just one container, you throw it in a bin. But in fact, uh, when everyone does that, it builds up to a lot. Michael Mobs became a Sydney celebrity for his off-grid home. Two years ago, Mobs created what he calls cool seats, composting benches made from recycled materials, which fit neatly on any urban sidewalk. They are part seats, part garden beds, and part compost bins for all the food waste coming from cafes and restaurants. In the bins, worms eat the waste and transform it into usable compost. They don't smell. People like the look of them. The cafes like them. Now we're going to turn it into a business. And I'd like to think that it will happen all across the world. I don't want to be a millionaire. I don't want to have money. So if anybody wants to get the design, we're going to basically give it away for a few dollars. 
For the past two years, the seats have been part of a trial funded by the New South Wales government. At Cafe Julia, both the financial and environmental improvements are already showing. Well, we've gone from a, uh, a waste removal commercial arrangement, uh, which was seven days a week, to now being roughly three days a week. Um, so there's a substantial cost saving, um, substantial saving from landfill. Staff would normally put food waste in commercial bins. Now they just put it into the cool seats. The cafe uses old Hessian bags to insulate the compost bin to provide darkness and moisture for the worms and bacteria. The bags eventually biodegrade, adding to compost, so there's no waste. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Up next, meet the 20-month-old boy who is brightening up Instagram and bringing a smile to people's faces with his hair that's uncombable. Stay tuned for more after this short break. And now the story of a 20-month-old boy who has a rare hair condition that makes his hair stand up and uncombable. He's definitely turning a lot of heads and possibly warming hearts wherever he goes. Let's see more. Bye-bye. This is Lachlan. He has the look of a rock star and is from a hair condition called uncombable hair syndrome. Turns out Lachlan is one in 100 who has this extremely rare hair condition. But another name is actually called spun glass hair, which a lot of the parents in the uncombable hair world prefer that. Can we touch his hair? That's like the number one question we get. People want to know how it feels. It's incredibly soft. So he was born with black straight hair, just like his older brother, and his newborn hair fell out and his new hair started coming in around six months old. Um, and we just thought it was like this cute little peach fuzz, thought it might be curly. When <laughs> when we first got his diagnosis or found out it might be what he had, Instagram was the first place I went to looking for information and for answers. So I wanted to be a source of information for other parents who might end up in the same boat. My husband came up with the Instagram name, Uncombable Locks with his hair, or with his name being Lachlan. We the best messages we get and the best comments we get are um, people that are like, my day was gloomy until I saw Locke on my feed or I checked Lachlan's Instagram to bring me a smile. And the fact that he has the power to turn someone's day around or you know bring somebody a smile with the way the world is now, um, being not even two years old and having that impact, I think is pretty special. The only comments that really I don't like are the ones that just say like to cut it off or um, I'm so sorry he has hair like that because we're not sorry about it at all. We love it and embrace it. Um, we want him to embrace it as well uh, as he gets older. So. Just our biggest thing is em embrace what makes you you and don't try to be anybody else. Um, that's, that's what we want to teach our kids. That's what we, what we want to teach Locke. And, um, just to remember to lead with kindness. However, there isn't a cure for the condition, although it may grow out during puberty. Say, have a good day. But for now, they just let it grow up. NASA has fueled its huge moon rocket for the first time. The rocket is scheduled to fly around the moon and back later this year. 
NASA engineers at Kennedy Space Center in Florida went ahead with a critical countdown test on Monday despite a fuel line leak. This was NASA's fourth attempt for the all-important dress rehearsal. It would be the last major milestone before the moon rocket's long-awaited launch debut. Engineers wanted to get all the way down to the nine-second mark, just short of engine firing, but it cut off at 29 seconds. NASA said it wasn't immediately known why the countdown stopped. The rocket is known as the Space Launch System, or SLS. It has an empty Orion capsule that would fly around the moon and back. This test flight is crucial before astronauts climb aboard. The second mission would send a crew around the moon and back. It's planned for 2024, and the third mission would have astronauts actually landing on the moon. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.